Hi, and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life, Sports Stats Edition. I'm Nathan Cole. I'm Akiko Taramoto. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. I mean, we talk about what we do, and I I hope we don't uh, make too lofty a comparison. We talk about what we do in terms of sports all the time. I mean, an orchestra is basically a team and we can debate whether the coach is the conductor or or not. But I know you've always many a drive to and from work. We've uh, wished we could have statistics or numbers applied to what we do, right? Yeah. I think, you know, there's a certain intangibility that's the essence of music or art, you know, that's awesome. And sometimes (laughs) you wish we had just something to hold on to. Yeah. I mean, players, you know, they can always, I mean, athletes, they can always look back through the years and see what numbers have gone up and down. And maybe some of those aren't entirely relevant and they change due to extenuating circumstances, but still it would be fun. You know, do I play more in tune this year than 10 years ago or... Okay, but there's going to be a certain point at which like the, that number's <laughs> not going up. So, maybe, maybe it's better we don't have. <laughs> well, I mean, with sports and, and with teams, you know, the, I guess the difference is teams are always competing against each other. And, you know, orchestras, we have those dumb lists that surface every once in a while. You know, the 10 greatest orchestras in the world. Who's, you know, number one? Um, <laughs> Probably no, the number one person doesn't think it's so dumb, but yeah. That's that's right. <laughs> Harvard doesn't mind those college rankings. Yay. But besides those lists, we're not generally uh, competing against each other. But the essence of teamwork and the individual's contribution to the team and to the final result, I think it would be really fun if that could somehow be captured in stats. So Yeah, it makes for good talk on the way to work, <laughs> well, way, way home I'll from a concert. Or... Talk on the podcast. And I think, you know, any... <laughs> Well, really, this entire podcast and certainly any attempt to inject humor into talking about orchestra playing has to owe a great debt to PDQ Bach, you know, Peter Shickley and his creation of PDQ Bach and all those great albums. And do you remember the the one where they play Beethoven 5? Right. I was just thinking of that. And I, I forget the specifics, but... Yeah, it's actually, it has a very lofty, well, fake lofty title. It's called New Horizons in Music Appreciation, <laughs> Beethoven 5. And yeah, basically he's uh, Professor Shickley does the play-by-play for Beethoven 5. Here, let's um, listen to a little clip of that. Ah, the violins didn't cut off there. A little trouble with the violins. They weren't watching. And there's that four-note theme again, folks. And another stop. Just can't seem to get this piece off the ground. Now it seems to be rolling a little bit. Seems to be building up. Tell me, Bob. I remember hearing that for the first time in some kind of, I think it was a summer music festival theory class or something when I was 14 or 15. It blew my mind. I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. It's funny. I didn't listen to so much PDQ Bach growing up. You know, I had friends who did, but I don't know, maybe it wasn't something people did at Juilliard pre-college or something or humorless place. Well, my parents had a bunch of PDQ Bach records, so I ended up discovering some of that on my own. And yeah, this particular thing I remember I heard in in the company of others in, in summer at first. But and I think I probably told you before and maybe on the podcast that when I finally did meet Peter Shickley, when he came to solo with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, I told him how many 
of the great pieces I'd discovered from his records, you know, the PDQ Bach version first before the real one. And he looked he, sad. He looked really sad. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't have the effect I'd wanted. But Beethoven 5, at least oh. I knew before hearing. The that's, that's good. New Horizons <laughs> and music appreciation. But you know, back then, I mean, so that was 1971. I had to look up when he put that out. And yeah, you know, it was breaking new ground to put play-by-play and color commentary with classical music. But, you know, now we're all about stats and there's fantasy football and the stats are kind of the, the game within the game. And so, I, I think really to, to properly map what we do onto sports, we need those stats and maybe even the, the advanced stats. Because, you know, statistics used to be really basic, right? It was like for basketball, just points and rebounds. And I think that was pretty much it. Maybe they kept track of how many free throws somebody took. But right now, what is it like? I mean, now it's like a billion things. And we'll get to how they collect some of that. But the point is that back in the day, when all you were looking at was points and rebounds, I mean, you would assume that the person that got the most points and rebounds was by far the best player. And, you know, that does, that measures something, but really fails to take into account someone's impact on the team. And, you know, that's near and dear to our hearts. Right. If yeah. you're sitting in the in a string section, you're probably not going to rack up all the points and rebounds, so to speak. But there still should oh, be although a way we to... had we've had players like that around here. Oh, yep. Really? <laughs> stat stuffers. They were, yeah, <laughs> they were out for those rebounds come hell or high water. Um, I still think there are some simple stats and penalties. We can't forget the penalties because that's an important part of especially sports like football and, and we'll get to that. But I think there are some simple stats that would still work for us. But I wanted to start maybe by mentioning some of these advanced metrics that I think would be really cool if we could somehow get them uh, into the orchestral world. It's probably not going to happen anytime soon, but they're kind of fun to talk about because they might actually give the closest representation to what we do. Baseball's really the king of that. Right. Which is a sport I am not familiar with. Yeah. I, I've never been a huge baseball fan, I'll have to admit. I don't know. I I think I had an aversion to playing it when I was a kid. There, there was just so much pressure. Like if someone's pitching to you, everybody's watching you. And, you know, you miss the ball, how humiliating is that? And you, Or you can foul it off or you can hit it and someone catches it. It's just there's very little that seems like it could go right. <laughs> it's true. I just, I'd much I much mean, But you like golf, which seems like... Yeah, but then nobody's watching you, you know? Really? I mean... Well, only the other three people you're playing with. But I mean, golf, you like golf, you could play by yourself. Right. Okay. Or at most with three other people. Right. Hopefully, they're your it's friends. But pitching. baseball, it's like, you know, when I was eight or nine and my dad suggested, I mean, he didn't suggest very strongly, but it's kind of like, do you want to play Little League and ugh, you have all these other strange kids watching me? No, thanks. I'm guessing our oldest daughter won't be interested. In yeah, so far, right? Hannah <laughs> seems not to want to. She's like a specific aversion to the situation you described. So, yeah. Yeah, she didn't want to play tennis at school. Yeah, just because it's practiced in front of, it's like at the time when there's like a lot of kids hanging out in the area. So, she said no. And she doesn't seem to want to practice violin either, which is done totally by yourself. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> Maybe it's just hard work that's yeah, <laughs> the first anything involves talent or skill. But baseball, I think because, you know, it's not that fast moving a game. I mean, I'm sure baseball players might disagree. But, you know, when you watch a game, there is a fair amount of standing around. Everybody's got a specific position to play. You really can break it down to numbers in ways that you, that you can't with some other games. And so, they've got some really wicked advanced stats. Yeah, some of my favorites, they've got a 
war or winds above replacement. Right. That is your favorite. So, first of all, what does replacement mean? It's supposed to represent an easily available replacement player. So, imagine that it's game time, <laughs> you know, starting pitcher, yeah, sick, can't play in the game. You've got to get someone quick who can pitch. Now, you know, in baseball, they've got minor league teams. They have a whole stable of people ready to just step in there. So, we're not talking about someone you get off the street, but it would be someone they could call up. They could be there in half an hour. They're, they're a minor league pitcher. That would be a replacement player. So, you know, what is the starting pitcher's contribution relative to the replacement player? And what I thought was interesting about this stat, they're looking at a whole season basically. Right. Not just at a game, obviously. Yeah. It's like over the course of the whole season, how many wins should you expect to, to get from this one player basically? So, maybe in, in a typical game, this player gives you an extra tenth of a win or something. And well, that's I think that's too high because over the course of a whole baseball season, that'd be something like 18 wins. And I think that's a lot higher than any particular stat is. But it would be a fun one over the course of a whole orchestral season. How many successful concerts would you expect to, you know, <laughs> is, is one you get one more successful concert just because a certain person sitting on stage? Interesting. Yeah. I guess the tricky and, part is defining the success of the concert, but sure. <laughs> and you can you can have a negative value for this too. You could where the orchestra as a whole over the course of a season would be better off <laughs> to have a constantly rotating cast of replacement players. So mm, not, that's a, none of us wants so many to be reasons that to not go there. Yeah, negative war. And you know, stop me if you've got any of your own favorite advanced stats. I don't. <laughs> I don't even know what advanced stats are. So well, here perhaps okay, here's, you should have gotten somebody more more well versed in. <laughs> no, no, no. Because I'm I'm counting on you for all the good football. So that, well, I'm you know, such a negative person that I really I like to focus on the penalties. The penalties? No, that's good. That's definitely <laughs> that's definitely part of so it. It's more up my alley. But in you know, in baseball, like in basketball, they only used to count the basic things, like they would count for pitchers, strikeouts, and walks. But that wouldn't really take into account how many batters someone was facing. So like two pitchers could have the same number of strikeouts, but one of them faced a hundred batters and the other one only faced seventy. Right. And so, if you're striking out the same number of batters and you're only facing 70, then that's, you're doing better. Right. So now, they measure strikeout percentage and walk percentage. So, I was going to say this could be solved with percentages. This doesn't seem that... <laughs> <laughs> Not that <laughs> advanced. Yeah. <laughs> Problem that should have to stand for like decades. I know, well, baseball, it's a stubborn culture. They're, sure. They, they still won't allow <laughs> right. review of... Uh, right. they, they won't allow the the cameras to call the balls and strikes. But I thought, you know, this could be, it's kind of like it would take into account, for example, if you're going to count how many notes people miss, you know, should right. vi violins be held to the same standard as like tuba? Obviously not. Well, obviously not. But you know. <laughs> I'm sure the tuba would agree too. <laughs> he misses his like two notes, like, you know, yeah, or like that the, the cymbal crash in Bruckner 7. You know, if that guy misses his moment, then that's 100%. He's out. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another interesting one. You know, pitchers always used to get annoyed at the defensive stats. So, like, let's say you're pitching a great game and someone hits a routine grounder, your teammate screws it up, doesn't get the out. That turns into a run, then it looks like you, the pitcher, allowed a run. And so then now they have FIP fielding, or did I get that reversed? Anyway, the point of it is that it's supposed to measure pitching independent of. What your your teammates do in independent the of errors, yeah, or, or just independent of fielding in general, yeah. 
So I, th- I thought that would be great in terms of like eliminating conductor interference. Like, yeah, the the violins may have... Yeah, I know, because like we've had things actually kind of recently where it was like, well, that wasn't our fault. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, we're doing well and then conductor gives some terrible cue or something. It's like that mm, that shouldn't no count. No cue or... Yeah. So, we need like playing PIC, playing independent of conducting. <laughs> yeah, because it measures what you actually have control over. Um, Not much, so... Okay, and then my last, my last sort of baseball advanced stat really applies to string sections, I think. They call it plate discipline. So, it measures for decades, all that you would measure for batters was their average. How often do they get a hit? But this uh, plate discipline looks at how many pitches they swing at overall, how many pitches inside the strike zone do they swing at, and how many pitches outside the strike zone do they swing at. So, if you've got Somebody, you know, somebody with perfect discipline would swing at every pitch that was inside the strike zone um, and they'd swing at no pitches that were outside the strike zone. So, regardless of the outcome. Right. So, yeah. So, this is just the the discipline. Okay. So, it's a combination of their eye, their instinct for what's going to be in or out of the strike zone. So, what's the equivalent for us? You know, like it's... Well, I I thought it might be because you... No violinist, for example, is going to know 100% of the notes 100% of the time. I mean, there's going to come a moment where you're just kind of blank. And if you can see that coming, that's like seeing a pitch that's about to be outside the strike zone. So, the point is, do you swing at that? Do you like go for it and play Oh, I see. So, do you know when to lay low a little bit? Yeah. Or you're not chasing every yeah every bad, bad instinct? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Now, I mean, you can improve that just by knowing things better. So, that more of the stuff is inside the strike zone, so to speak. But yeah, plate discipline. I thought that might be a a useful one too. Mm, Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's pretty much, that's what I've got for the so-called advanced stats. I think those would be fun. And just, I know you know about this. We've watched a lot more football and basketball than we have baseball. But basketball now is in the middle of a stat revolution because of that company, Sport VU. They have those cameras that... Well, they don't float. I mean, they're on wires, but they're, they call them eyes in the sky because they cover the whole court from above. And they, I didn't know this. They actually collect 25 data points every second. For basketball, for example, they track all 10 players on the court. The cameras know who each of the 10 players on the court are and they track them 25 times a second. They also track the ball. 25 times a As, second. Are they chipped? Is everybody like... I That is one thing I don't know. I don't know if they do it just from picking up the jersey numbers or... I mean, it makes sense that they'd be chipped. Yeah. But somehow... So, what it allows teams to do, you can... Obviously, you can see where players are on the court the whole time. Obviously, you can see where they were when they took their shots. So, you know, you don't have to have a statistician marking down where everybody was shooting from anymore. So, it can all be done automatically. Right. But yeah, you can track players' movement offensively and defensively and see what they're doing the whole game. For example, who runs the fastest? It used to be, you know, you'd have the eyeball test like, wow, it really looks like so-and-so is trying on defense. Like, they they really hustle back. But now you know exactly how fast somebody's running and... So, they must be, Chip. They can't just... Yeah, I I would think they'd have to be, but I'm not... Interesting. I don't know all the ins and outs of that, but... It's really allowed agents, for example, when they're trying to negotiate their players' contracts, they can say, you know, this yeah. guy is always stuck to his defensive man, you know. 
the stats show that he's on average only two feet away from his assignment at all times and the, the league average is like three and a half feet or... How funny. And I wonder, you know, and I'm sure, I mean, I saw Moneyball, but I totally forget. There must be a certain amount of like that sort of art of, of all this that gets lost in, in the numbers. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's like it really... When you lay it down in that kind of detail, maybe there's like no wiggle room. Maybe that's like that tells the whole story. Yeah, I guess that's the whole allure of stats. You know, this thought that you could measure value just through numbers. And Moneyball was a really fun movie. I think it's a book too and I haven't read the book. But (laughs) um, I mean, the idea there was that well, all the so-called artful people, right? The old time scouts that had the great instincts, they were super annoyed that some kid was coming in and saying... No, you know, what you think is important isn't important and the numbers that I'm collecting, that's what really matters and I'll prove it by only hiring players that fulfill those numbers and I think we're always slightly worried that something like that's going to happen in orchestras. It's like what you thought was important. Oh, Oh. (laughs) it's another episode. We've got some new numbers. Might be a podcast for another decade. But, you know, I thought for orchestras, if we had those cameras in the sky, you know, you could track whose bow is with the section leader's bow greatest percentage of the time. And, uh, you know, people's... I'm personally not a huge fan of that one. <laughs> finger positions on the fingerboard. I mean, you could measure pitch, you know. Yeah, that'd be awesome. In tune percentages during crunch time versus non-crunch time. What's crunch time? <laughs> no, like when it really counts. Like when... Like, yeah, when, when does it really count? For us, I don't know, difficult Before passages, that? climaxes. But like, oh, you're talking transitions. about... Transitions. You're talking about passages rather, rather than like situations. I, I mean, I haven't haven't thought this all the way through. But. Oh, come on, here's your chance. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I would Listeners think... Listeners don't want to hear some half-baked thoughts or anything. No, no, well, like, you know, take a, take a section solely, you know, like when everybody's ears are on the first violins, yeah. you know, and where everybody can hear what the first violins are doing, for example, in those moments, how closely is everybody tracking the center of the pitch or, or uh, the conductor's beat, for example. Who's right. right with the conductor's beat? <laughs> yeah, I like these. I like when we're like a conductor, or usually Dudamel, right? He'll he'll look into the section and say, "I know that some of you aren't doing this or that." So he's trying to remind us that he's <laughs> he's he the eye in the sky. He's yeah, he's the sport vu. That's right. Well, what did he say? The, this was about vibrating during tremolo, I think, in Bruckner, which we just uh, we finished the week's run of Bruckner four today, but. Yeah, he was saying, I don't even want to look because I don't want to be disappointed. For those of you who aren't doing it, I don't want to be disappointed in you. So, I'm not even going to look. For those who are doing it, (laughs) just I don't have to look because I know you're doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I feel like he often says stuff about like knowing. I know some of you aren't doing it or I can see. I feel like sometimes it's something kind of egregious. Really? Someone's doing that back there? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, what did he say also this week? He said, I will talk to the administration. I'll make sure that everybody gets a bonus in their paycheck if you do this. Was that also vibrating during tremolo or was Probably. that? Probably. <laughs> Unfortunately, I yeah, something else. my feelings about that. Um, yeah. And interesting that, and I, I've told this story before, I won't tell the whole story again here, but yeah, our, my first week on the job in the Chicago Symphony, the one big blow up was between Baron Boehm and a section string player about vibrating during tremolo. It's about vibrating? It was was partly about about vibrating and partly about individual bow usage (laughs) in the tremolo. And it was in Bruckner. That was Bruckner 9, of course. But 
Yeah, it's a, a tremolo subject can really uh, get the tempers hot. Yeah, well, I told you, an audience member that we invited today asked me about my tremolo. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. You had a guest in the audience who emailed you after? Yeah, or texted you and was like asking why it looked different than <laughs> the people around me. I thought, well, I mean, oh. that's powers of observation. I mean, you know. I always think it's nice that I have this quick, really quick, tight tremolo, but it's true. I mean, you know, they ask for different things. From what I could hear of your tremolo, which was not much, I thought it was great. I could hear your tremolo in the big moments because you put well, out you know, a I have lot a very quiet, fast tremolo. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think you know, especially Bruckner Four. I think it's supposed to really start from basically nothing. Yeah. So well, you start in, you know, that could be to hear more stats. Total dynamic range. I mean, that could be a very simple one. Like, yeah. what's the quietest sound you make in a concert? What's the loudest one? Ah, I like that. And, and where's like your average? You know. I do like that. And correlate that to, because you could have this mapped out to where, if you're in the first violins, where do the firsts have the tune? And what's your average dynamic level during those times versus your average dynamic level at all other times? It better be different. (laughs) That's true. I love that. You know, I think, I remember getting a comment when I was fifth chair about some people thought, or one person or some people thought I played too loud. And that really bugged me because I was like, I play loud when it's loud. I play really quiet when it's quiet. And I think people just, you know, they hear one thing and they go, oh, that's really loud. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> That is <laughs> such a snapshot that first of all, like it's marked loud. So Yeah. I mean, the knowledge of degrees, you know, how much and when at least is important in orchestras. And <laughs> Yeah. So, I definitely am a big fan of that one. I think we should bring that one out. And before we get, before we just kind of do a roundup of what simple stats might map and, and of course, the penalties, because I know you're you're keen to get to those. Not necessarily, um, but yeah. Now, football, we've often said, is the sport that we think might most closely resemble orchestra playing, just because it's the biggest teams. Yeah. The most specialized players. Yeah, I guess that's why. I mean, I I guess I used to think more specifically about it. Yeah, I guess it's the large teams. There's a lot that can affect the outcome of a play. Oh, yeah. Well, like, you know, that great book that we have both read, Take Your Eye Off the Ball. Uh, yeah. About how to watch football, how to understand the inner workings a little bit better. This idea that the things that you're not likely to notice as the casual viewer are the things that can really make the difference in whether a plays successful or not. Yeah. So, I find that interesting. I mean, of course, it's not, you know, it's a stretch. The analogy, but yeah, but so for example, they have. I'm just going to mention one advanced stat for football um, DVOA, defense adjusted value over average. So that you know, now that football is such enormous business, they have armies of people who can go over the data from every play. So they have those same eyes in the sky. So there are people who break down every single play. And since there are 11 people on each team, on the field for every play. So, that's 22 players, right? So, they, if they're analyzing one team, for example, they'll analyze all 11 players for each defensive play, let's say. And they'll look at what each player did versus his opponent on that play. Ah. And they'll... I heard about this. They'll assign a number to it. What was the result of that player's interaction with his opponent, his opposing player? And that they assign some kind of a number based on, again, what a replacement, what an average player might do in that same situation. So, if you block your man, then you get some kind of positive number 
you know, as long as an, if an average player wouldn't have blocked that same guy, then you get the positive number. And so, from that, you get a look at what the entire defensive unit was doing in that play and they adjust it to the strength of the opponent. And then over the course of a whole game, you can say the defense as a whole based on these player-by-player interactions has a certain rating of this. But how amazing would that be? See, they could, again, it's that sort of win over replacement thing and you're adjusting it to the strength of the opponent. So, like it could be adjusted to the incompetence of the conductor (laughs) or, or the weirdness of the soloist. Like, okay, you, uh, (laughs) <laughs> you didn't play this passage very well, but actually an average player would have played it even worse considering the hideous beat of the conductor. Could be that kind of a yeah. stat. Yeah, I like that. So, that that's defense adjusted value over average. This could be, yeah, player adjusted <laughs> contribution. <laughs> um, but yeah, you could break it down phrase by phrase. Here's how this went according to this player, this player, this player, and now the whole, the second violin section of this orchestra has a rating of X based on all those phrases and all those players put together. (laughs) Yeah, that would certainly take the guessing out of uh, (laughs) orchestra rankings. (laughs) Yeah, we need some hard numbers. Yeah. I I don't want to just hear that the Marinsky orchestra is amazing. I want, you know, data. Proof. (laughs) Um, What about win probability? (laughs) We always kind of laugh about that. But at at any point in a game, you know, so when the game starts, right, it's 50-50. And then after every play, situations changed a little bit. So, each team has a certain percentage of (laughs) chance to win the game. (laughs) I think you could do this. Yeah. What what are the things? I mean, I'm always looking. I feel so bad for the kickers with that stuff because like, yeah, just, you know. Right. That's when you see it like... Where I, I guess I sort of remember watching a game where it like suddenly, you know, after he missed the kick, it was like right the odds of winning the game were like right. Oh. I think yeah, that was a situation where it was it was a kick that was supposed to be easily made. It's yeah. so like there was still some chance the guy wouldn't make it, but he was really supposed to make it. So because they were only down by one or something, and there were only a few seconds left in the game, it's like he's probably going to make this kick. And then they'll win the game. So, their win probability was 91% or something. And then he missed the kick and it went down to like (laughs) 0.5%. Like, now that they're uh, down by one with only two seconds left, that's pretty much no chance. So, I... You know, I play concerts like... And it's so dumb because this is not at all how it works. But sometimes I... (laughs) I don't know. Like, we keep talking about Bruckner, I guess, because it's on our minds. But like... Berkner 9, there's like a really tricky passage for the first violins, you know, the... In the scherzo? Yeah. No, no, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Same movement. I hope you edit out my singing, but yeah. Um, <laughs> it, We're keeping that. Like, no matter how well the concert's going, if you get to that spot and, you know, the first violins eat it on there, they just you feel like, oh, this, this, no, it's going to take a lot to bring this concert back from... <laughs> Being irredeemable. It can be done, but it's a small percentage chance. Yeah, or like Mahler. I feel like is there must be something in, in Mahler. But I, I guess I'm thinking more. Yeah, Mahler actually doesn't have as many passages that I think are like deal breakers. But somehow, I, you know, Schubert, I think, has a couple. Yeah. Yeah, you just feel like if that doesn't go well, then... Or is, isn't there like... What's a symphony? Why can't... I'm blanking now because I've been playing too much repertoire. But it's like something where there's like a really tricky, intricate thing. Maybe that begins a movement or... 
And if it's not together, then, you know, it's just like everyone's kind of shaking their heads. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. Uh, you mean like the very beginning of the piece or? Maybe or the like the beginning of, of like a movement. slow movement or like, I don't know what I'm thinking of something where it's just like, oh, well, you know, I mean, here's one. There's uh, Copeland, Appalachian Spring. Oh, yeah. You know, the the high E flat. I mean, I just, I'm still horrible at that. Like, I just, it really ties me up in knots trying to. Just, I feel like the whole piece is like, you know, because if you hear the first violin section just kind of splinter on that top note, don't you feel like? <laughs> and this is why it's amazing to me, some of the, these huge horn solos or, you know, like horn comes to mind because we, we just did Bruckner 4. Right. And, Starts you know, with a horn solo. Yeah. And it's, it's supposed to be very big and ethereal and sort of timeless. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it's just, it seems like a lot of pressure. I mean, it is a lot of pressure. It doesn't seem like it. So... <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I think that's amazing when somebody knows that that's sort of the outcome of the concert. Not to like, you know, I'm sure they try not to think of it that way, but sometimes feels like it might be sort of partially writing on your effort there, right? Oh, yeah. Bassoon solo at the beginning right of spring. And you know, we're calling this episode the most valuable player. So, that starts to get into that topic, right? I mean, if we're going to be one player that you couldn't do without in a certain concert or what, it's it not, depends on... I mean, it's not fourth chair, first violin. <laughs> What? It could be. I mean, depending on the, the context. I mean, if you're the linchpin that oh. holds everything together. Dear God, let that never happen. <laughs> like, but no, this the the deal with the, the high E flat and the Copeland. See, that would be a way to bring all these uh, stats together. Like, let's say we had a play-by-play announcer. It's like, all right, coming up to the high E flat now. If we look at the five players with the highest crunch time percentage in the high register, uh, we've got these five, but... Three of them have terrible plate discipline. They will swing at anything. (laughs) If they think there's a chance, they're going for it. And they also have the lowest sound quality rating and the high (laughs) dynamics. So, this section is going to have to hope that only the people (laughs) with the plate discipline show up. And unfortunately, those two don't have uh, great crunch time percentages for the high register. Ridiculous. (laughs) Um, I always feel like, you know, because I have such a hard time at the end of Mahler 9... Like, I can't close it out, you know? It's, it's like such a... Oh, so that's emotion. like the, the closing or the mm-hmm. save, the save stat in baseball. Okay, maybe. But I feel like there are some players that, you know, I'm not going to name any names. I feel like I don't always feel like they're they're going to rock the rest of the stats. But they can hold those notes forever. Really quiet. Yeah. Well, I and mean, it, may not, it might not be that quiet. Okay. But they can, it doesn't can bother them to sit there the job done. Well, that's almost yeah. exactly like the closer role in baseball because yeah. the, the idea there is... Uh, to get the save, you have to be ahead in the game or at least tied. So, they bring in the closer when, you know, you've got a chance to win. The game's mostly in the bag, but you just need to close it out. And that pitcher really only has to have one good pitch or what actually one amazing pitch. They don't even have to be a very complete pitcher um, as long as they've got that one thing they can do yeah. to close out the game. So, yeah. Yeah. In some ways, you know, it's tough. Well, that's what I guess it is. Maybe be an artist or, you know, a basketball player. (laughs) I feel like they also have to do a lot of things. But uh, obviously, we're not supposed to be only there to do one thing. I know. But if we could, you know, like the the closers in baseball. Mariano Rivera, he's in the Hall of Fame. With that cutter. We're in the wrong profession. (laughs) Well, let's get to, let's get to the more simple stats. And I mean, we could do, were you thinking more of football? Uh, yeah, because, you know, I actually don't have, I mean, I've watched a lot of basketball, but I don't have the greatest grasp of those statistics. 
and not even for football necessarily, but, you know, I think we've watched football a little more recently, so I could probably weigh in a little bit more about, as we said, penalties. Yeah. Well, what do you have in terms of the football stats and penalties? This ought to be, this will be good. Well, the first one that comes to mind is holding. Okay. Because I do feel like we have times when we feel as if we're, we have someone kind of making it difficult to do our job. <laughs> You mean even teammates might? Uh, yeah. Well, I guess all we have are teammates. We don't really have opponents. <laughs> right. But like, a, you know, like you could say conductor too, I guess would be involved in this. Okay. And those kind of penalties are really annoying in football because it's like the play looks like it's a success, but then one or two members of the team engage in some yeah. you know, illegal I think I can relate to that. conduct and, and then it sets the whole team back. What is it? Five yards? Did we decide as a five or 10? I, I can't remember. I'm thinking 10. It's annoying. I feel like a five-yard penalty doesn't seem that annoying, but a 10-yard penalty is like... And then there's the repeat of down penalties, which are especially right. irritating, which seems, it reminds me of rehearsal where it's like, you know, you <laughs> bozo screwed it up and now you're going to do it again. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, we got to do this again because... <laughs> yeah. I can relate to sort of... Yeah, how hard it must be to not just, you know, start yelling at your teammates. Yeah, well, those teams that collect a lot of penalty yards, I mean, they, they hardly ever do well deep in the season because it takes that whole team discipline to avoid those. Yeah, so what else? Well, I've got unnecessary roughness, which <laughs> I agree. That is That should be the biggest yardage penalty. Because that's, that's a big penalty in football. Yeah, that's the biggest yardage penalty. And so that's Other like than pass interference, obviously. You're, you're deliberately... Or, or they make the determination that you could have chosen a different, <laughs> a different tactic if you'd wanted, but you yeah, or you could have you know you, throwing. But you had around. time to slow your pace, your trajectory. Right? Okay, so it's a it's a thoughtless penalty that really it could result in someone getting hurt. Yeah, probably less likely physically in our case, but. <laughs> okay, so you're really choosing to make an ugly sound. You're making decisions that show you don't really care what the result is. Yeah. Of course, the it's for us, it's hard to determine. Well, probably there too. It's hard to determine what's the difference between not caring and... Just you know, that's the way you play. General thoughtlessness. Yeah. Like, well, and that debate exists in the NFL too. Cause yeah, it's, sure. They've started calling in the interest of player safety. So, they say, you know, they, they call these things a lot more tightly and they've had players saying, well, you know, what they're calling unnecessary roughness now, that's just the way I play. So... If they want me to keep playing in this league, then I guess I'm just going to get that penalty. So, it's kind of the <laughs> same mentality. It's true. I mean, I I guess in our case, it's not like we hire people whose job is specifically to sometimes play roughly. That's right. I guess in the <laughs> NFL, you know, they hire people to, they used to hire people to rough <laughs> the opposing well, players so, up. You know, I mean, like certain positions, it's like, you know, you're expected to be more physical than others, obviously. So, <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely, there's definitely times when I feel that that penalty is in order. Obviously, this is just wishful thinking since no one actually ever gets penalized. <laughs> Unsportsmanlike conduct. Okay. So, that's the stuff that kind of goes outside the bounds of the actual play, right? It's like the play's over. Yeah. I think I'd like to see that called when there's like not enough respect being paid to the rehearsal. There's the, you know, the fact that there's work being done, people are playing, you know, music being made. And then there's, again, I don't want to get too specific about our colleagues, but there, you know, definitely times when you feel like there should be a little more respect paid to all the people who are playing or. Right. Like the conductors working with the 
strings and the other half of the orchestra. For example. Or working with the woodwinds. <laughs> I mean, strings do it too. You know, the conductor's yeah. working with the woodwinds and finally we're like, <gasps> he's not paying attention to us. We can. <laughs> yeah, I think anytime, you know, it can get to the point where anytime that the orchestra as a whole stops playing, people just turn to each other and like, so, you know, what are you going to eat for dinner tonight? Or, yeah. you know, so it, I think that if that gets to a certain level where it's like either volume wise or just, like, you know, just <laughs> causing an atmosphere of unprofessionalism that I would like to see some unsportsmanlike conduct penalties handed out. Well, yeah, I mean, or any activity after the whistle, right? So, it's like the conductor stops yeah. and let's say we're playing a series and like and then conductor stops and someone keeps going up and up and up and like a little slide. Nope. So, yeah. Definitely be docked. Will we laugh about whenever someone jumps an entrance. Right. Especially consistently, because I feel like these are not things that happen. Yeah, everyone does something once in a while, but when you hear it happening sort of from the same area kind of over and over, then you start to feel like someone should be called for a false start. False starts, yeah. Well, you know, in... False start, offsides, whatever you want to call it. Announcers are good about pointing that out now too. I mean, they'll say, oh, you know, tough break for Alonzo the rookie. You know, he's had already five false start calls this season, you know, league average is only two. Yeah. And I have to work on that. They know that some people are prone to to certain behaviors, you know, and you get called on it. Well, I was wondering actually if that might be a stat for conductors. Conductors are, you could sometimes call them the quarterbacks since they're responsible for getting things started. And, um, you know, quarterbacks always, they have the snap count, right? And so, I guess the difference there is that they're trying to get their team to start the play at a specific time in a specific way and at the same time to fool the opponent, right? So, they have all these different ways to count and try to lure the other team off sides. But even without all that difficulty, some conductors just have trouble starting <laughs> a phrase accurately and in time. And I feel like that would be a perfect, what do the conductors do to make people jump in early or fake them out? You know, it's a bad sign like at the Hollywood Bowl when someone can't get through the Star-Spangled Banner without yeah, if the, losing some of us. If the anthem is a problem, then you're... That's like we're, the, uh, We start sweating for the rest of the concert. <laughs> 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 and I, I mean, to be fair, <laughs> so, you know, our tradition is that every concert starts with the anthem there and often we'll have guest conductors from countries that are not the United States of America. And, um, <laughs> and they may never have conducted nor heard the U.S. national anthem oh, before. It's possible. And so, when I'm concertmaster, you know that since I have to walk out right in the beginning, what often happens is that I'm, and it could be a privilege or it could be a pain to have those two to three minutes awkward conversation with the guest conductor backstage right before I walk out. And Sometimes that's really, really fun. I finally get to see their true personality and I'm like, oh, this person's pretty cool even though they worked us to death in 90 degree weather at the Hollywood Bowl stage. But sometimes they kind of run up in a panic like, oh my God, they told me how to conduct the national anthem. Um, Okay, wait. So, it starts, it's in three, right? And there's a pickup to the first bar but there's a roll first, right? So, should I give one, two or just kind of give like one prep beat and I... <laughs> feel like saying if you're asking this now it's too late <laughs> just well i mean do something i mean i do feel bad because like you know you, I, I feel bad too you I mean, like you know the snare and then like it's not clear how long the snare is supposed to hang on well sometimes they're, they're not sure if 
like we have a way that we have to do it, you know, and I think it that's not like a symphony where they go, I'm going to do it this way. I think they think like they do it this way and I don't know what way that is. Right. They're coming into so, our house. I do yeah, feel for them. And then hard. sometimes one of them will come out and I'll, I'll, I'll try to guess what they're going to do. You know, are they going to give one, two or just two or just something that looks like a downbeat and panic. And then, you know, they'll get through it. And then right after that will be somebody like Bramwell Tovey, who's just, I mean, if you wanted someone whose nickname was the show will go on. I mean, <laughs> nothing's going to rattle that guy. Yeah. And so, you know, we'll have him sometimes immediately following one of those other guests and, and I'll see, you know, what? what's he going to do? Uh, how how clear is it going to be with him when to come in? And then he'll, he'll always do something that just leaves no question. <laughs> Not even sure if he gives one, two, or if it's just two, but whatever it is, it's right. That guy is it's right. it's the definition of yeah. seasoned professional. Well, that, I'll get to that at the end too. Well, what else you got? You, Pretty the end much of your I mean, penalties. Cannot, well, you know, sometimes it feels like somebody's grabbed your face mask and they've wrenched your head around. <laughs> Horse collar. You know, Horse collar. There we go. Feels Yeah, I feel like we sometimes get the, the musical horse collar. So. What about, you know, they have a stat for um, defensive touchdowns, which is when those touchdowns, not scored by the offense, obviously, but on those surprise turns of a play where somebody gets the ball that never gets to touch the ball under normal circumstances. So, it'll be one of those 350-pound linemen yeah. that uh, suddenly picks up the ball and starts running toward the end zone. And it's not only is it the greatest day of their lives, but all their teammates too are like slapping them on the back and laughing. And they're like, oh, look, you know, <laughs> this guy's never had to oxygen, run more than five yards. And Right. And then after they finish the run, they've got the oxygen mask on the sidelines. <laughs> I feel like that should be, you know, those stats should go to those instruments that don't always get the spotlight, but suddenly in, in one particular piece, they get a huge solo and then everybody's kind of laughing like, hey, all right. <laughs> My goal is to have people stop laughing when I have a solo. <laughs> I'm sort of borderline that person. What? You've never been that person. No, you know, we do it so infrequently when it does happen. There's a lot of patronizing, like foot shuffling and giggling. You know, I think it's, I choose to take all that stuff as admiration. I refuse to read anything you're else. Very, that's, you're very healthy. <laughs> now, how about this? These are not game time stats necessarily, but you know how the NFL has sort of an audition process that's a little bit more open. Right, the combine. Yeah, yeah. they call it the the combine. Uh, it takes place, I think it's always in Indianapolis, right? Yep, like in April. Yeah, so it's like a pre-draft thing where... Now, some players, I believe, don't work out at the Combine if they feel that their stock is so strong. Like um, it might damage... Is that like not having to go to the audition? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Like if you totally. feel like your, your like reputation is It's like a cattle so call, big, right? Right. Yeah. You don't want to take the risk of actually showing up and playing. Well, so, we should clarify what this means. I mean, they're for if it's a... In the orchestra world, if it's a big enough position, you know, it would have to be principal or, or concert master. Right. Kind of so, the, there's not uh, an audition necessarily. No, it's not always an audition. Or sometimes if there is an audition, it's just to satisfy the local union rules. And the actual process is going to follow a more like slightly secretive route. We've seen it happen. I don't, I'm not going to come up with the specifics, but so that's, yeah, that would be like the, and we, we've also heard of players who said their strategy was to not take the audition because they did not want to be considered one of the players who would take a cattle call audition. Right. And they, 
in a way they don't want their numbers to be stacked up next to other people's numbers. Right. They don't want to be known as someone who took the audition and didn't advance or. Yeah. So yeah. So with the combine kind of similar, I'm guessing. Yeah. Now I think in the NFL, the majority of players still do go to the combine. It's sort of seen, it's a bit of a red flag if you don't go. I see. Okay. But for certain players of big reputation, they can, Mm -hmm. they have enough interest in them that they they don't have to go. Certain positions I would imagine, right? Like. Yeah. And now those players who do go, what's interesting is that they're all measured on the same tests and they all have numbers assigned. So, everybody has to run a 40-yard dash and they're timed and everybody has to bench press 225 pounds, I think it is. Okay. The vertical. How many times can you bench press 225 pounds? Yeah. Vertical leap, I think long jump, they have to run the shuttle cone drill to test their agility, change of direction and all that. So, what's interesting is that out of all those stats, the 40-yard time is the one that's kind of bandied about the most because it can I mean, depending on the position, obviously, but yeah. Yeah, it does depend on the position, of course. But I feel like it's that's the one that people talk about the most because it can affect so many things. It's like if your top speed is X, then probably you can do a lot of things quickly and probably you're a really good athlete, but it's not totally relevant to every position. I mean, those guys on the line, so to speak, they're never going to, they're, <laughs> if they're running 40 yards, then something has gone seriously wrong in the play. Right. But um, as you say, because it's not just, you know, they're testing your agility, not just your agility, but your, just your quickness. Yeah. So, I feel like for, because for ideally us, you've got a, like, you know, on defense, you've got some big guys who can really move. Well, yeah. And so, for us, I feel like the 40 yard dash time, it's kind of like, how fast can you play? It's like, what's the fastest you can play? Gross. What a disgusting stat. Well, yeah. No. So, that, you know, probably, I mean. mean, It's not, that's, I mean, that doesn't, I don't think that's a great comparison because I feel like that's not a useful skill really. Okay. You know, maybe it's like how in tune are you for really fast, really virtuosic? How well can you play something really virtuosic? Yeah. Might be like that. And, you know, the, the assumption is probably if you can do that, I mean, that means you're a good player. How in tune can you play? something virtuous like yeah. okay yeah i could see that it's kind of like the jock mm-hmm. thing but you know if you're in the string section maybe that's not the most important thing right like you need to be able to look up and see where one is sure. in the bow and just so they have is there a similar i mean there is right there i is. mean i've always heard you talk <laughs> about nba players ones who are you know nfl but it's like ones who are huge stars in college and then it didn't translate to professional leagues. Yeah. Well, that happens too and that's often positional like I guess it would be kind of like a man I'm having trouble coming up with a great example. I mean in college basketball it would be like an amazing point guard in college who just dominates the competition. His ball handling is so great and he's a really great shooter and can always, you know, is a great leader, teammates love him and then all the pro teams look at him and imagine putting him on their team and they say, well, he's only 5 foot 10 and mm. he's going to be going up against people who are 6'2 and they're just going to block all his shots and they're going to be faster than him maybe. Right. But then of course it moves the other way too where somebody was unremarkable in college. Right. And that usually has to do with raw skills like there's a 7 footer who just didn't really put it together in college, but still he's seven feet tall. <laughs> and if he can learn a couple, you know, basic things in the pros and do it consistently, then there won't be that many people who can hang with him. 
And in the NFL, they have this stat. So at the combine now, they spend more time looking not only at the 40-yard dash time, but the time between zero and 10 yards. So it's that uh, burst from right. stop to 10 yards. And that's much more relevant for people who do all the dirty work, you know. Right. Not the wide receivers or the... Right. Wide receivers, it's really important to know how fast they can run because it's they're going to be running 20 yards and can they get separation from the person who's defending them. But for the people on the line, it's like from the snap, yeah. how fast can they be going within half right. a second? Sure. Because I think the times from 0 to 10 yards is usually in the range of like 1.4 to 1.6 seconds. Like where you are in that range is super important. Right. So, yeah, they call it... Is someone a two-stepper, meaning they can get to their top speed in two steps? Or are they a strider, meaning they need to hit their full stride? Ah. And, you know, they're violinists like that. <laughs> like, they're great once they get up to speed, but <laughs> don't try uh, asking them to find their speed in the first, you know, the first couple beats of the passage. Oh, dear. Don't bother Terrible. asking for that. And, you know, so they also have for quarterbacks, the Wonderlick, of course, the, oh, that intelligence test. Yeah, which um, I <laughs> always joked about having a written portion <laughs> of an audition or violin audition, auditions. or just you know, orchestral auditions. I think that you know, I think especially for a section player, but I'm sure you could come up with good ones for non-section players. But you know, it's like you know, some sample questions is you know, you ask about a situation like uh, suddenly become unsure of the tempo in a passage and it feels like you're not sure what direction to go you know what are your choices like a you you lay out until you're sure you know and b you decide you know and you're gonna really go for it you're, you're gonna say you're gonna you feel the people around you could really use your help c you know whatever it is and of course b being the, the one you don't want <laughs> well also i mean you had your stand partner broke a string in a concert yeah an e string and waited until the very softest part to change the string. Yeah, because he slash she was sure that they needed to keep playing with this broken string and using any means necessary. So, Well, they said, uh, you know, everybody needs me in the loud part. Well, maybe, maybe they said it, I forget. But um, that was strongly implied by the fact that they kept sawing away, yeah. even in a different octave. <laughs> Since their E string is now missing, they decided that they would contribute best by sawing away loudly on a lower Right. Lower octave. And then um, then when we were done playing, just, you know, thought that now was the time. It was nice and quiet <laughs> to start trying to change that string. And so, that could be a, another one on the Wonderlick. Yes. Wonderlick orchestra test. Yeah. yeah I think uh, I'm only partially kidding about that a written test. I think that it would... <laughs> I think it would be not just useful for us. I think it would be useful for them to be like... <laughs> It's like the driving test. Like, what did you get wrong? It's like, well, okay. Well, next time you'll know that you're not supposed to play louder and yeah. leading everyone around you. <laughs> I want to save just a minute at the end for those players, maybe for whom stats don't capture the whole story. Mm -hmm. Every sport, every team has its players that are so-called locker room guys. You have them on the team because they've been part of a championship team before, you know, because they're... They're, they're like blue. stable mates or something like you feel like they're right yeah so in they, horse racing like, yeah see. yeah so in horse racing as like i used to love horse racing when i was growing up as you know so yeah I, I once explained this to you that that when the horse is riding to post the parade to post that they often or always have have a friend trotting along next to them who you know someone just sort of ex exerts a calming influence over them yeah 
Well, so the same, you know, and on a sports team, it could be a calming influence, but it could also could be the fire, you know, and and it has to work not just on a one-on-one basis, but a one to the rest of the team, Mm -hmm. you know, so the classic example would be like a really young, talented team needs that one locker room guy who maybe after a game or a practice where everybody's clowning around too much, you know, they... Back in the locker room, the coach couldn't say this and get to everybody, but the the locker room guy could be like, you know, this is BS. You guys, I've been part, I won five championships, you know, with X team and they never would have acted like this. You should be ashamed of yourselves. And, you know, they're looking at, you know, they know that he couldn't make a shot to save his life, but he was there and, you know, we, especially when we were in the Chicago Symphony, we, we knew who those guys were, who maybe you wouldn't want to count on them in the the most difficult passage. But when it came time to negotiate the contracts every three years, every four years, it's like, that's why we have those guys around because they know the contract, you know, for lack of a better term, like they've been part of a championship team before. They know what it takes to run a great orchestra. Yeah. And I do as I get older, especially I appreciate those. (laughs) Those guys more and more. And even it doesn't have to be something like, oh, they're good at negotiating. It's like. No, but know. it's just they've been part of a championship team. Yeah. Well, there's that. Or even people who are there because, you know, or not there because, but their presence reminds everyone about what's a good work ethic. You know, what's, yeah. what's the right attitude? Yeah. I mean, I, I look to those people myself sometimes. I, I want to be one of those people, but I also have those other people I look to as well. And yeah, just as a check because a conductor or a coach, they can be there to give the motivational speech or whatever, but they're not in the trenches. They're not making the sound. They're not running the plays. And yeah, if you had to apply any of those advanced stats to these people, you know, the wins above replacement or whatever, probably wouldn't hit the big numbers, but. Well, that's why this is, you know. (laughs) Yeah. It's just a, a fantasy conversation, but you know. No, but I mean, this this maps exactly onto the, the sports world. That's true. You're right, because there, there are those guys, obviously, in both places. But And in hockey, they even have the goons. goons. <laughs> they may actually be a corrosive influence on the team, and they can't skate very well or pass or shoot. No, but they're there. They're, you feel secure, right? Because you know that the, the goon yeah. is going to... They've got your back. Yeah, and no, I think that would <laughs> They're be only nice. there to beat people up. <laughs> that I couldn't figure out a parallel for that. No, but that would be nice. Exactly. I, like maybe it's the person in the orchestra that like yells at the audience member with a cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the only reason they're on stage. Jeez. <laughs> I don't think we have that. Yeah. No um, thanks. <laughs> I'm gonna try I'm gonna spend the rest of my career trying not to become that person. <laughs> well, this has been tremendously fun one for me. I I could think about this all day and I'm sure I'll come up with all the stats I missed tomorrow in the car, but. Well, maybe it'll be a two-parter. Maybe. All right. Well, yeah. And we never define the most valuable player, but let that be you. (laughs) Whatever orchestra you're playing in, (laughs) strive to be the most valuable. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for joining us as always here. And uh, if you're, if you're not subscribed or if you're not sure, Head to iTunes, head to whatever app you use to listen to your podcast, hit that subscribe button so you always get the new episode. We're so grateful you're here with us on Sand Partners for Life.